Today's message is titled Rejection, Repentance, Refreshing, and Restoration. First section, wait a little longer. Life is filled with longings, often for things we can't obtain right away. The promises in the Bible encourage us to wait on the Lord and look forward to his coming. Waiting for other people can sometimes be taxing too. Madeline Rockwell recalled in Reader's Digest story, My grandmother was a ball of fire while Grandpa was slow and deliberate. One night they were awakened by a commotion in the chicken house. Grandma sprang out of bed, ran to the chicken house, and found the cause of the racket, a large black snake. Having nothing to dispatch it with, she clamped her bare foot down on its head. There she stood until Grandpa finally arrived a good 15 minutes later. He was fully dressed and even his pocket watch in place. Well, he said cheerfully to my disheveled and enraged grandma, if I'd known you had him, I wouldn't have hurried so. Do you sometimes feel like that grandma waiting for what seems like forever? Today's scripture passage introduces us to a man who waited a long time for help to arrive over 40 years. And it also introduces us to a race of people who are longing for their long-promised deliverer to come and save them. The good news, the apostles announce, is that help has finally arrived. Times of refreshing and restoration await for those who turn to the Lord and trust in his promises. Next section, longing for liberty. We're all ready for COVID and lockdowns to be over, aren't we? It's been well over a year now since life turned upside down and we had to resort to layers of plexiglass and PPE to separate us and keep us safe. Recently, a friend posted on social media a funny meme of a woman sadly pouring a bottle of liquor into a blender. The caption read, Oh look, the virus is still here and it's snowing again. Sometimes things seem to drag on and on without an end in sight. It's easy to become discouraged, even to start to despair because our hopes are not being realized. The prophet Isaiah lived about 700 years before the New Testament era. Prophet Daniel about 600 years. But both prophesied God's anointed leader, Messiah means one who is anointed, would come to deliver God's people. Isaiah wrote the servant songs describing the just reign the Messiah would bring and foretold a time when God would come with vengeance and divine retribution to save his people. This would be accompanied by wonderful signs in both people's lives and the environment around them. Isaiah 35, 5 says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Daniel spoke of a coming Messiah as well, Daniel 9, 26. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end and desolations have been decreed. The Jewish people at the time of Jesus were very proud of the fine temple King Herod had built. Even though there were heavy taxes and they were occupied by the Romans, they at least could practice their religion on their own terms. But zealots were independence fighters who often had support of the general population. People longed for the freedom they had once enjoyed under Kings David and Solomon, their golden era. One man had longings of a far more personal nature. 
He was over 40 years old and had been crippled from birth. Friends or neighbors carried him each day and plonked him down beside the temple gate called Beautiful, where he could eke out a living by begging from those going into the temple to worship. Can you imagine being crippled, paralyzed, unable to move around freely your whole life, four decades up to that point? He would have such longing for liberty. And to be set beside that gate, likely prohibited from entering beyond the court of the Gentiles, excluded from sacred space by his disability. So near and yet so far. One scholar writes, There's not a conclusive answer to the historical question about the status of the lame in this era, but there's strong evidence that this man was at the gate of the temple not merely because it was a strategic location for begging, but because his physical condition would have been seen as excluding him as unclean, having the potential to profane or pollute the sacred space, end quote. What are you most longing for? Is it physical healing? Is it political change? Is it an end to lockdown so we can move about freely again? Where God's promises intersect with our longings, exciting change and unexpected fulfillment are about to happen. Next section, Leaping in Faith. When Peter and John went up to the temple to pray that day about three in the afternoon, they came across this man crippled from birth beside the gate. Peter didn't have any money for him, but gave what he had. Peter told him to walk in Jesus' name. We read in Acts 3, 7. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Remember the messianic servant foretold by Isaiah about seven centuries earlier? would cause the lame to leap like a deer. Peter saw such miracles as signs of the power of the risen Lord Jesus, who in his own lifetime had reassured John the Baptist he was indeed the Messiah. Jesus had told John's followers to report back to the baptizer how many signs were being fulfilled. Matthew 11:4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. It wasn't that Peter somehow coerced the man into being healed. Peter plainly indicates personal faith in the risen Christ was involved. Acts 3.16 says, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Sort of recalls the times that Jesus used to say to individuals in his own healing miracles, Your faith has saved you. Our unfulfilled longings become opportunities to exercise faith. When we don't already possess something, we have to trust God about it not become impatient or bitter or resentful that others have what we don't, and trust it to God's hands. He may have that or something better that you haven't even dreamed of. As Hebrews 11.1 1 reminds us, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Next section, 
living the promises. Lately, various political leaders have been setting more ambitious goals regarding the environment, specifically reducing greenhouse emissions. Slowly, as a culture, we seem to be coming to grips with the fact that if we want planet Earth to be a good place for coming generations to inhabit, we'd better start taking care of it. That may mean altering our lifestyle and consumer habits to be more conserving, less demanding on limited resources. For Peter, the healing of the crippled beggar is not just a fluke or one-off, but represents something much bigger, God's plan for the restoration of creation. So he appeals to various writers of scripture to show the recent happenings involving Jesus are a vital part of God's restorative plan. Mark particularly uh, the use of the word servant in verses 13 and 26. 13a. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Verse 26. When God raised up his servant. Now, to our Gentile Christian ears soaked in Trinitarian language, that sounds a bit strange. Why would Peter call Jesus God's servant instead of his son, which he is? Well, it's probably to make the connection with the servant songs in the latter section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. As Matthew made the connection explicitly in Matthew 12, 15 to 18, quoting Isaiah 42, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him, and he healed all their sick, warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. You know, when you go shopping at a mall, not that we're doing much of that these days, and you look at the directory map near an entrance, and it has that little red dot, you are here, Peter is placing this particular healing miracle in the context of a whole raft of God's promises for his people in the overview of the divine plan. Look how many other Old Testament figures he cites. Verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. Verse 18. This is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets. Verse 21 as he promised long ago through his holy prophets, for Moses said. Verse 24. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. Even though Samuel may not have spoken directly about Jesus, Samuel anointed David through whom reign and leadership would continue perpetually as Nathan prophesied, and that points to Jesus. And verse 25. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your forefathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. So Peter is saying to his countrymen, his fellow Israelites, they are seeing the fulfillment of centuries of prophecy before their very eyes. God's power has broken in upon their circumstances. This healed man who had been begging alms from them for decades is living, walking proof that the promises are being realized. God is showing himself faithful, true to his word. They've seen the anointed one be cut off, as Daniel foretold. 
They witnessed before their very eyes Christ's suffering for others' sins and iniquity, as Isaiah talked about, and that God has not left his anointed one in the grave, as David sang in the Psalms. They have stepped into the climax of God's time, God's space. What's next on the agenda? For those who have been ailing so long physically or spiritually, racked in disease or the bonds of sin, times of refreshing and restoration await. Verses 19 to 21 point ahead to what's imminent on God's calendar. Acts 3, 19 to 21 says, The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Jesus is coming back. Our world is so messed up. Relationships are so broken. Corporate power can be exploited. And often people get shoved to the edges of society. Sin takes its toll, whether it's sin that selfishly transgresses to feed its own appetites, or sin that hardens the soul to the cries of others. We need a Savior, one who will refresh and restore the order and wholeness our Creator made possible in the first place. Next section, leave ignorance behind. So what can be done about it? Peter doesn't pull any punches in setting forth the part fellow citizens have played in this crisis of biblical covenantal proportions. Verse 17, he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. What ignorance? Well, their act of destruction of God's Messiah. Look at the use in verses 13 to 15. It says, You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. You killed the author, the pioneer, the chief leader or prince of life. How much more destructive an act could there be? Do we do the same today by our attitudes and actions towards our neighbor in need? Toward those who warrant our own help? Oh, sorry, no time today. Click. Do we subtly participate in character assassination by our posts, by our gossip? Do we cast suspicion on others' actions and intents without knowing the whole story? How ignorantly do we act? What's the remedy as Peter sees it? Repent, turn to God. Verses 19 and 20. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Now to repent is to have a change of mind or metanoia, to turn away from sin and do an about face, turning to God. It's for our good, really. Verse 26, Peter says, When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you, by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The blessing comes after the turning. How is the Lord speaking to you during these strange times, leading you to do a reset, to stop doing some things and get focused more on His priorities? Seeing people we know struggle with sickness and 
hearing of folks on ventilators gives us pause to ask if we're really investing our life, our energy in what's most important, what matters before God, our ultimate judge, and in light of eternity. Repent and reprioritize. Let Jesus take over your date book, your calendar. Make a point of checking in with him in prayer each day so he can show you what ought to be the first claims on your time. Next section, listen well. The Lord is speaking through his revelation in person through Jesus, through his words shown to prophets and apostles who boldly spoke it and sealed it with their martyrdom. He continues to speak it to us today through the Holy Spirit, who takes scripture and highlights it for our own lives to direct us how to get back on track with God's program. Are you listening? Peter quotes Moses in verses 22 and 23. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. When parents say to their offspring, you're not listening to me, what they really mean is usually, you didn't obey me. To listen is to obey. If we love, we will listen and we will obey. As Jesus noted in John 14, 21, Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. This week, our horse Jade, who's four years old, acquired a new skill, a clever skill, but it's not one we wanted her to learn. She's found out how to lift up the latch of her stall and let herself out. Fortunately, there's a second pin we can put in to prevent this. One day we found she'd escaped and began to fear she'd run off, only to find out she'd gone out to her usual paddock and was happily grazing. A couple other times she's let herself out and been munching on the grass near to the barn. What a relief for her owners to discover she hadn't gone far but stayed close to home. Robert Morgan shares some experience with dogs that can apply to us humans. He writes, My daughter Hannah and I had a great dame named Samson that we dearly loved, and Samson, as it turns out, was well-named for he was big and strong and muscular, and like his namesake, he also had a penchant for wandering. We built fences, we tried chains and dog runs, we tried everything to keep Samson at home. But he'd dig under the fence or climb over it and it drove us to distraction. So we bought the best-selling book on the market on the subject of training dogs. No Bad Dogs was written by the famous British dog trainer Barbara Woodhouse who raises Great Danes herself. One night when I went upstairs to Tucky and Hannah, she had a sad expression on her face and she said, Dad, I know now what Samson's real problem is. Let me read you this paragraph, Woodhouse wrote. In a dog's mind, a master or a mistress to love, honor, and obey is an absolute necessity. The love is dormant in the dog until brought into full bloom by an understanding owner. Thousands of dogs appear to love their owners. They welcome them home with enthusiastic wagging of tail and jumping up. They follow them about their houses happily, and to the normal person seeing the dog, the affection is true and deep. But to the experienced dog trainer, this outward show is not enough. The true test of real love takes place when the dog has the opportunity to go out on its own as soon as the door is left open by mistake, 
and it goes off and off and doesn't return home for hours. That dog loves only its home comforts and the attention it gets from its family. It doesn't truly love the master or mistress as they fondly thought. True love in dogs is apparent when a, do a door is left open and the dog still stays happily within earshot of its owner. For the owner must be the be-all and end-all of a dog's life. End quote from the book. Robert Morgan adds, The real test of our Christianity isn't seen in our work or activity or even in our theological purity. It's found in this. When we have an opportunity to wander away, to disobey, to leave his presence, do we choose instead to stay close to him, to abide in Christ, to obey? Quote. Are you longing for liberty? When the Lord leaves a door open, would you wander off or stay close to home? He wants to refresh and restore your world if you'll only trust him and turn to him. Let him become your be-all and end-all. Let's pray. Father, we confess we have often trespassed and gone astray, rejecting even Jesus, the author of life, through what happened at the cross. We praise you for your victory over the grave, raising him to await the time when he will come again. Thank you for his healing, his forgiveness, his gracious activity and blessing in our lives. Turn our hearts to you. Increase our trust in you so we may be made strong for your great purposes. In Jesus' name. Amen.